0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: The pre-election Friday, friends. My name is Joseph Backholm, and it is my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us as we head into a, an important weekend before a very important day. If you have not already voted, and we know that 33 million Americans already have, uh, but there are hundreds of millions likely still to vote. And if you are one of those and you need voter education resources. We have the answers for you. Text the word GUIDE to 67742 to receive a voter guide for your state. Tell your friends, your family, your neighbors, your small group, your church, whoever else to do the same. Again, text the word GUIDE to 67742. And just in case you need the reminder, you spell GUIDE, G-U-I-D-E to 67742. Today on the program, A Virginia teacher was fired from his job for failing to comply with pronoun rules. He was also in court today. We'll have an update on that case. In addition, a win in court for 13 Marines who are challenging the military's vaccine mandate. We'll give you the details on that case as well. Later in the program, a majority of Americans under 30 do not believe absolute truth exists. Also, Some are calling for COVID amnesty. We'll talk about all of that and whether there's a connection in our worldview conversation coming up in the program today. But first, our headlines. Earlier today, Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee released a 1,000-page report that details whistleblower disclosures, alleging the Biden administration has weaponized the FBI and the Justice Department against its political opponents. The report discloses a rampant culture of manipulation and abuse at the highest level. Joining me now to discuss this is U.S. Representative Andy Biggs. He is a member of the House Judiciary Committee, which released today's report. He represents Arizona's 5th District. Congressman Biggs, good to see you today.
2: Good to be with you, Joseph.
1: Well, it's a thousand pages, probably some good weekend reading for us. But uh, summarize this, summarize it for us, if you will. What are the key takeaways
2: from this report? Top line is that the highest levels of the FBI used its power both internationally and uh, domestically to spy on Americans, um, uh, persecute Americans, investigate Americans for political purposes. Joseph, that's the big takeaway they abuse their power for political purposes we can get to more specifics but but uh, they accused people of being domestic terrorists they went after parents and and uh, observed and watched them when they appeared at school board meetings to to uh, protest or speak out they um, they suppressed evidence of political friends like in the Hunter Biden case so that's what it it's it uh, that's the top lines and one of the whistleblowers said uh, that the, basically that the FBI is rotten to the core.
1: Can you tell us how many whistleblowers are involved in this report? How many are cited? How many people came, came forward to contribute to what this
2: report has? Well, that's proprietary information, but I can tell you that um, so far there has been somewhere north of 24 whistleblowers that have come between uh, several committees and several members on each of those committees.
1: That is not an insignificant number because, of course, it uh, it takes a lot of courage and there's a lot of vulnerability once you decide to to become a whistleblower. I want to go through some of these findings and see if I can get you to expand on them because as you read down the list, even just the summary list, it is very disturbing. One of them says, that the FBI artificially inflated domestic violent extremism statistics for political purposes. Do you know what's going on there?
2: Yeah. So what we were told is that the uh, management of FBI was pressuring agents, line agents, to miscategorize crimes so that they would miscategorize something from a normal, uh, where they would normally categorize something. Let's say it's a a homicide, or let's say, it was uh, you know some kind of assault or something like that. They they were uh, compelling them and forcing them to recategorize those as domestic terrorism. And the reason is is because they wanted to use that narrative that the Biden administration has been uh, using nonstop is is this proliferation of domestic terrorism. So what you do you end up skewing the statistics to say there's more domestic terrorism. Than uh, than ever, and uh, then there really is actually, and then use that to go after uh, individuals and expand the scope of domestic terrorist act investigations. By the way, they were doing this at the expense of things like uh, child sexual, uh, sex trafficking, sexual abuse. So that gives you an inclination of of what we're talking about here.
1: Well, and, and if you start connecting the dots, there does seem to be a pattern. We know that there's been a, uh, a fixation on the events of January 16th and, and months of hearings try to focus the country's attention on that. President Biden, of course, uh, in his red speech, and he he did kind of part two of that this week, right, where he talks incessantly about MAGA Republicans and the extremists. And there really does seem to be, and this seems consistent with that pattern, uh, in a, an attempt to um, identify and label and marginalize political opponents as people who are not merely political opponents, but as dangerous. And, and what you're suggesting here, what the report is suggesting, is that the Department of Justice is part of it?
2: Yeah. Uh, so this is coming right from the top, right from the uh, Biden and his his leaders, whereas Merrick Garland or Christopher Ray, it appears to be coming from the, the very top leadership, top down. And what they're doing is they're crafting a narrative against their political opponents. I mean, you've got, as you pointed out, and, and you called it the red speech. I call it the Moloch speech. So when you have, um, when you have this uh, uh, president of the United States basically demonizing, calling out 75 million Americans and their families and loved ones. And ca- saying they are a danger. And then last night reiterating that they are a danger. If you don't vote Democrat, that somehow you are trying to undermine the democracy that goes hand in glove with this notion of create of, 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 of creating a, a feeling of visceral reaction to people who support conservative ideals and saying that they're domestic terrorists, that they are the danger. Uh, and that's what, with what this is all coming down together. And it's to give them control and power. And uh and that's that's what's obscene about it, quite frankly.
1: Another finding that's very concerning is in this report that the FBI is purging employees who refuse to align themselves with the leadership's political ideology. What can you tell us about that?
2: Well, that's what the whistleblowers have reported to us. Uh is that is that just just like I was talking about where you had management kind of pressuring line agents to Fudge the statistics and data. You're also having people uh, denied promotions, um, taken off assignments, and basically kind of pushing them out um, when they when they have divergent political interests. So if they're conservative, out they go. Um, and it's been infiltrated by Marxists, and that's that's consistent with all of inf- institutions in America today have been infiltrated by the left, hard left, Marxist. And apparently, now we're finding out that even our the highest levels of our police apparatus at the federal level, DOJ and FBI, are also so uh, infiltrated.
1: Now, the Department of Justice has been pu- pushing back on accusations like this for quite some time. Here's Attorney General Merrick Garland from August 11th of this year. Let's play clip one. Faithful adherence to the rule of law is the bedrock principle of the Justice Department, and of our democracy.
3: Upholding the rule of law means applying the law evenly, without
1: fear or favor. Under my watch, that is precisely what the Justice Department is doing. Congressman Biggs, that's what I want the Attorney General to be saying. uh, Are we not to believe him?
2: Well, I, I, I don't only want him to be saying that, I want him to be doing that and making sure his department's doing that. But they're not doing that. What they did is, is they got in cahoots, and you're going to, as we, we've seen this, with regard to investigating parents who show up at school board meetings and they put a ter- kind of a, a label or a tag on them, a special tag as they watch. And for what reason? Well, uh, you had the school board association, uh, National School Board Association working with this administration to try to come up with a way to go after parents. And so that's not, that doesn't mean that you're applying the law evenly. I mean, if you were applying a law evenly and we are a rule of law country, guess what? Then that's how you preserve and protect freedom. But that's not what's happening here. The the contrary to the school board issue, you have the Hunter Biden issue. How long did they have that laptop before anything began to break on that? Over a year. And they still haven't uh, investigated. They still haven't proffered any charges. And... Uh, We've seen all kinds of indications that 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 laptop has indications of criminal conduct. Well, that's not even handed either. So you're protecting your friends and going after your political adversaries.
1: Congressman Biggs, do you expect any kind of response from the Department of Justice or is this an issue that uh, will only be um, dealt with? We'll get a response. uh, Should congressional hearings take place if the Republicans take control of the House?
2: I don't expect any written response. I expect this is going to be a guidepost, if you will, for what uh that House Judiciary Committee is going to do with investigations vis-a-vis these issues with regard to the FBI and the DOJ. That's what this is designed to do, to release this out. And I have a feeling that you're going to see us working on that from November 9th onward until we actually get some hearings going. But it's not going to be this witch hunt like you have with uh, the the Democrats, the Alinsky style, Rule 12 in particular, where you freeze and isolate and personalize everything. This is going to be going at tell us the truth. We want the truth. We have to clean this up. Uh, You know, as we go forward, we're going to make sure everybody's due process rights are protected.
1: One other shocking part of this report, a whistleblower alleges that he was told sexual abuse material investigations we're no longer an FBI priority. That's outrageous. What can you tell us there?
2: Yeah, in fact, that's, that's one of the most uh, disturbing portions of this is that they traded in this inve- these investigations of domestic, so-called domestic terrorists and fudging those numbers so they could go after more domestic terrorists, more political adversaries. And they traded out these very serious crime of sexual abuse, uh, sexual pred- predation crimes uh, for that, they just squeezed those out and said those no, are no longer a priority. That is absolutely the, one of the most dangerous and disturbing aspects of this report. And that will, we, we hope to get to the bottom of that and expand on that in part of the investigation as well.
1: Well, we've noted the FBI and the DOJ's reticence to protect. Pro-life pregnancy centers and churches who have been subject to more than a hundred attacks, but there are people uh, within the uh, Christian community, within the pro-life community, calling for prayer vigils outside these centers during elections. Do you think uh, prayer can accomplish what the uh, Department of Justice may not be accomplishing?
2: Well, we we all need to put our faith in God and and hope uh, have our hope in Him as well, because uh, obviously putting your trust in the arm of the flesh is not the answer uh, in all things. It should which should be helpful because we live in this country that was designed to give us freedom of, of religion and speech and assembly, but uh, we're seeing that abused by the arm of the flesh today. So I would say uh, work as if everything depends on you, but have faith and trust in, in God and that things are going to work out because I do believe they will work out uh, as, we, as we do our part and trust in Heavenly Father. And that's why we can
1: be happy warriors. Congressman Andy Biggs, thanks so much for your time today.
2: Thanks, Joseph.
1: Coming up next, oral arguments took place at the Virginia Supreme Court today in a case involving a teacher who was fired for failing to comply with pronoun rules at their school. We'll give you details on his case and that argument when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch.
0: Would you like to spend consistent time in God's word?
5: Learn more at frc.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting for Tony today. The website is tonyperkins.com, where you can find this and every episode of Washington Watch. Our First Amendment is a cherished right. The right to speak our minds, regardless of whether the government endorses our speech or not. But what if the government feels the need to compel you to say things that you don't want to say? Well, that is what my next guest faced, and he received his day in court today after being fired from resisting compelled speech. Peter Vlaming, a former Virginia school teacher, and his attorney, Chris Shendeveld, joined me now to share his story. Peter and Chris, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Joseph. So glad to have you. Now, Peter, uh, we'll get to Chris in a moment about some of the legal arguments, but give us some background on how your case came to be.
6: Sure, no problem. Uh, Four years ago, uh, I explained to my school administration how I was handling the fact that one of my students, a 14-year-old girl, had decided to adopt a male identity. I explained that, okay, I got have this student, I've had her for two years, uh, she's a great student. I like her a lot. Glad she's in my class. Uh, I'm adopting her new masculine name. I've even uh, had all my students uh, choose new French names for the beginning of the year. We have French names in French class as part of the cultural lesson. And we so I had them all choose new French names. This is French year two. Uh, so she, she wouldn't be singled out. I'm trying to accommodate her as best as possible. And I explained to my administration Okay, I'm using the new masculine name, but, uh, and I'm avoiding feminine pronouns uh, in her presence so to not be provocative, not to provoke her, but uh, I'm not using masculine pronouns either because, uh, because I can't, because uh, she's not, uh, she's not a boy. I respect the fact that she can believe the way she wants about human nature, but I don't share uh, her belief. I don't share her family's belief about the fluidity of gender. And my uh, um, the administration responded by uh, uh, turning up the heat and saying, well, uh, you will use masculine pronouns to refer to this student uh, even when the student isn't present, uh, even when there are no students present, even if it's just uh, colleagues at the school. And if we think that you're using the new name, uh, even though it's a masculine name, when you could be using a masculine pronoun, uh, we'll fire you. And, and I, I, I was, you know, kind of deer in the headlights, absurd, but that was that was the ultimatum, a written ultimatum that was given to me. And so, how long did it take from that
1: ultimatum to from, from then until you ultimately were separated from your job?
6: Well, it happened pretty quickly because uh, the, the there's a spark to the powder keg. It was Halloween, two thousand eighteen. I was doing a lesson on the catacombs of Paris, which are tunnels under the city where they stacked up bones that were exhumed from overflowing grave sites and cemeteries in Paris. And uh, we had a set of virtual reality goggles, about maybe 20, 25 of them. Uh, And we were going to take a virtual tour of the catacombs. But in order to do that, you had to be divided into two. I divided the students into pairs so that... One student could wear the reality, the virtual reality goggles, and the other student can make sure they weren't bumping into things. And we went out into the hallway where there are less obstacles, and I'm supervising the activity, and I noticed that the, the student in question, uh, her partner isn't paying attention, and she's about to uh, walk into a wall. And I shouted out as a reflex, don't let her hit the wall. And the the fact that I used her, which I inadvertently used because I had been avoiding using feminine pronouns in class, uh, caused uh, uh, caused uh, how can I say? Une vive reaction, a violent reaction, not a violent reaction, but uh, by the end of the day, uh, I was I was let go. I was, uh, it, I was it caused a reaction. For sure.
1: Yeah. Now, I, I want to bring in your attorney, Chris Chandevel from the Alliance Defending Freedom, who's representing you in court. Chris, welcome to the show.
7: Hey, thanks for having me on.
1: Well, thank you. And, and we've just heard a bit of the facts of the story. You're making legal arguments in court. Tell us about the hearing today. Tell us what you're arguing on Peter's behalf.
7: Sure. So we were in the Virginia Supreme Court today, uh, raising uh, Peter's case and his claims, then our our primary claims are that, you know, Peter's case is a case about compelled speech. He wasn't fired for anything that he said or for anything that he did. He was fired simply for what he couldn't say in good conscience. The school attempted to force him uh, basically to endorse their ideological views about sex and gender identity by trying to force him to use biologically incorrect pronouns, and he just couldn't do that, so they fired him. Uh, constitutionally, uh, that makes, that makes this, his case very strong under our constitutional free speech protections uh, and constitutional protections for the free exercise of religion. You know, when, when someone, when, when any of us, you know, it's one thing to tell um, a teacher, you know, there are certain viewpoints that we're fine with you expressing outside the classroom. Uh, but, you know, when you're in the classroom, you need to focus on French, you need to focus on math. Um, But to to take it to the next step and to say you actually have to affirmatively mouth these words that you fundamentally disagree with or else we'll fire you, uh, that raises the stakes in terms of the constitutional violation. So that's the case that we were making today in front of the Virginia Supreme Court, uh, and we were very pleased with how the arguments went.
1: And you may have answered the question, but in about 30 seconds, how do you feel after the arguments? Are you confident in victory?
7: Uh, so I, I never like to make predictions based on how oral arguments go, um, but I will say that we felt very good about about the the questions the justices were asking. Um, they were very engaged. Uh, they they seemed to really understand one, uh, just how important this case is, uh, and and then two, you know, just how serious of a violation it is um, to actually compel someone uh, to speak messages that violate uh, their core beliefs. So we got great questions from the justices. Um, and like I said, I don't like to make the predictions, uh, but we do feel very good coming out of the argument today.
1: That's great news. Peter, I want to bring you back on for the last word here in about 30 seconds. This has cost you a lot in your life. Would you do it again?
6: Yeah, there, there are some hills that are worth dying on, and, and this is one of them. Uh, it was a, a pretty clear cut for me uh, what needed to happen. But this, is, this isn't something I could go along with. So, yes, well, I, would, I, would, I would do it again.
1: We're encouraged to hear that. We're, we're encouraged by your, your bravery and your courage because, really, when you win in this case, and we pray that you will, we all win. So, Peter Vlaming, Chris Chandeville, thank you both for your time today and your uh, efforts in this battle.
6: Thank you so much. Thanks so much.
1: Coming up. FRC voices support for Marines challenging the president's COVID vaccine mandate. We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us.
5: Are you a university student? Do you know a university student? Specifically, one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully-funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply.
8: What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home, sitting in for Tony. Tony will be back in the chair with you on Monday. In response to a lawsuit filed by Family Research Council, a federal judge has granted class action status to 13 Marines in their fight against the military COVID-19 vaccine mandate. The ruling provides another setback for the Biden administration as consistent with court rulings that have found military branches are violating federal law with these mandates. What will this mean going forward, both for the 13 Marines and the military vaccine mandate in general? Joining me now to discuss this is Ken Klukowski, a former senior counsel in the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice and a former special counsel in the White House's Office of Management and Budget, He has also litigated constitutional cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. Ken, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me. It's great to be back.
1: Good to see you today. Tell us about the ruling today from the court, what this means for this case.
3: Well, it's where the class certification happened a little while ago. So this is now to the next step. And what's going on is 3,700 U.S. Marines had have a religious objection to taking one of the COVID-19 vaccines. And they all requested religious exemptions from the Pentagon. Uh, The the Pentagon uh, denied all of those. In fact, we started out with closer to 7,000 Marines. But thousands were already discharged before we could get court relief. There was another law firm based out of Florida that does great religious liberty work. And as they were litigating this and they sought a class-wide certification to cover all 3,700 remaining Marines, while they were doing that, there was one Marine captain who was essentially put on notice that he was going to be immediately kicked out the military, that he was going to be discharged. And so the judge quickly entered an order in his case, and then DOJ appealed that up to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, even while the other 3,700 Marines were still in that Florida court in Tampa. And so as a result, 13 U.S. Marines that uh, that my law firm represented in the Southern District of Texas Uh, And so they are encompassed in this broad class action for the Marines. Nonetheless, because this one Marine captain got ruled on first, and his appeal is first before the Federal Appeals Court, it also freed up our original clients to be able to file their own brief participating in his case so that we can ask the Federal Appeals Court to hand down a broad, robust decision protecting religious liberty just in the case of this one captain so that when the entire class action appeal is decided a few months from now, this first decision will automatically then be extended to cover all 4,000 Marines. Now what I know the that's kind on? of in the weeds procedurally. I know that's kind of a complex oh. setup, but that's how we found ourselves here.
1: No, I think we got it. There's a pioneer in this case. And if he wins, then we think everyone can win. If I've summarized that quickly. Yeah, yeah,
3: that's a great, that is a great way to sum it up. That's exactly right. This one Marine charged ahead first. And so by coming to reinforce him early on, it can cover the main force when everyone else's day comes before the court.
1: Now, one of the critical arguments in the briefing in this case is that the government has failed to prove long-term efficacy of the vaccine. Why is that important?
3: Well, I'll tell you, this is stunning because the legal framework, whenever, uh, whenever an action by the government burdens a fundamental right, or at least certain rights, like the free exercise of religion, and also a federal statute here, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RFRA, as we call it for short, the legal standard for both is called strict scrutiny. And when strict scrutiny is involved, it means a court starts out with the assumption that what the government did is illegal. That's the default. If no one does anything, the government loses because the court has to presume when strict scrutiny is involved that what the government has done is unconstitutional. The burden rests entirely on the government to save it. And they have to do that by two things. They must argue how their action is narrowly tailored to achieve a public interest that is truly compelling in magnitude. And then second, they need to back up both halves of that, both the narrow tailoring and the compelling interest. They have to back it up with evidence. The court just doesn't go with their say-so. They have to, like in a case like this, provide medical scientific data. And in this case, what the Pentagon was saying is that requiring every service member to get a COVID-19 vaccine is absolutely necessary to achieve the government's compelling interest of stopping the spread of COVID-19. And so our argument was coming in saying you have no evidence that the vaccine taken one time, just a one-time vaccine, which some of these Marines, some Marines could have gotten, you know, a year and a half ago, to say you have to show that that actually does stop the spread of COVID-19, or the Pentagon's vaccine mandate is not narrowly tailored, meaning it would be struck down in court.
1: Well, the CDC has recently acknowledged that the COVID vaccine does not stop the spread of the COVID virus, which makes me think if that's going to be relevant in, in these decisions. And we think it's a, it's obvious. But Of course, the wheels of justice turn slowly. But Ken, last question I think I have for you on that. Because the CDC has said the covid vaccine does not stop the spread of the coronavirus because the president himself has said that the coronavirus epidemic is over why do they continue to enforce these mac these uh, mandates in about 30 seconds
3: well, I'll tell you that, you know, at FRC, Tony Perkins, General Jerry Boykin and Ken Blackwell have been leading the fight all the way for religious liberty in the military on this issue. And so when we partnered up and were honored to represent FRC alongside the Marines in this brief, when we partnered up on this, that's why we made the point of citing what the CDC said, that they've changed the goalpost now. They've admitted, OK, the vaccines are not stopping the spread of the of the uh, of, of the disease I've got to origins. cut you off
1: sure. we'll, we'll do this again we are out of time thanks for being with us and we'll be back with you right after the break stay with us
8: what is biblical masculinity in our culture of gender confusion there aren't many examples of godly manhood men husbands and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood leadership and strength but where can they find it in our culture
5: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in Fortuna today. It's my pleasure to be with you. A quick reminder that the Family Research Council is hosting its annual Friends of FRC Banquet on Thursday, November 10th in Costa Mesa, California. If you are near there or can be, Make sure you make plans to attend that event. You'll hear from Tony, as well as special guests Mike Pompeo, Michelle Bachman, Ken Blackwell, as well as musical guest Stephen Curtis Chapman. It's a night that is sure to encourage you. Register by calling 800-225-4008. That's 800-225-4008. And as always, thank you so much for all your support and what you make possible. Now, Much has been made about the increasing secularization of the culture. One consequence is that a new poll shows a majority of adults under 30 do not believe there is absolute truth. The polling was conducted nationwide by Summit Ministries and McLaughlin and Associates last month among 1,000 likely general election voters. Researchers found that while 60% of respondents overall believe there is absolute truth, 55% of adults younger than 30 say they believe each person determines their own version of truth. What consequences will this loss of truth have in our homes, our churches, and our communities at large? Joining me now to discuss this for our weekly worldview segment is David Klaassen, who's the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, good to see you today.
9: Hey, great to be with you again, Joseph.
1: Now, first, let's just get your quick reaction to the top line of this poll. 55% of adults under 30 don't believe in absolute truth. That surprise you.
9: No, it doesn't, Joseph. And I think um, you know, someone who's been tracking uh what Americans believe and the, the worldview of Americans, you know, we we've been talking about or we work with George Barney, who's a senior fellow in our Center for Biblical Worldview. And we know that only six percent of Americans uh, at large, have a biblical worldview, only 21% of those who regularly attend evangelical church, churches. You know, a hallmark of a biblical worldview uh, is that there is such a thing as absolute uh, moral truth, that there's an objective truth. And so, you know, as a as society increasingly becomes biblically illiterate, as a society increasingly turns away from God, uh, we shouldn't be at all surprised that key tenets of the biblical worldview, such as the existence of absolute truth, are going to start to decline. Um, so in place of the belief of absolute truth, you kind of have this uh, moral relativism, uh, you know, your truth, my truth. Even that language people probably see on social media when people refer to my truth or your truth, uh, that's what's replacing kind of an understanding that there is an actual uh, Truth uh, that there is a right, that there is a wrong. So I'm, I'm not surprised. It's unfortunate there's going to be consequences for this, but I'm not surprised.
1: Now, David, I think we saw a really good illustration of a world that does not believe in absolute truth yesterday on The View. We go there often for illustrations of what a secular world looks like, but co host. Sonny Hostin had this to say about white suburban women who are expected to vote for Republicans in this election. Let's play clip six. I am Catholic. I read a, a poll just yesterday that white Republican suburban women are now going to vote Republican. Why? It's almost like roaches voting for raid, right? Okay, David, I, it happened quickly, so I'm going to summarize what happened. She She notes that according to polling, white suburban women are expected to vote for Republicans. She said that's the equivalent of roaches voting for raid. Now, the analogy there, she makes white suburban women are roaches. Um, You couldn't make that in many other contexts and keep your job. I haven't heard that she's been fired yet, but the connection I want to make to this idea of absolute truth or not, the fact we know that you couldn't say that about any other group other than white suburban women and keep your job Is that an illustration of the kind of moral relativism that we're experiencing when you deny absolute truth? It kind of gives you permission to say things about certain people you're not allowed to say about other people.
9: Well, I I think so, Joseph. And I think that's a good illustration of it because, you know, we again, you and I talk about a a biblical worldview and how uh, less and less of our friends and neighbors have a biblical worldview. Uh, What replaces that biblical worldview is uh, kind of a synchronistic worldview. People pick and choose. Kind of, you know, something that we talk about, you and I talk about sometimes is like this woke ideology, this this kind of group identity. And increasingly, we're we're seeing folks kind of put in in the left has been doing this for a while, but they're doing it with increasing frequency, uh, identifying people with their ethnic groups, uh, their uh, racial groups, uh, how they identify sexually, sexual orientation, gender identity. And kind of there's almost a caste system, uh, I argue, I would argue, that the, the, the left is now embracing. And if you kind of, you know, fit into one of these so-called disadvantaged classes, uh, well, then it's okay to throw rocks at those who are kind of at the top of this caste system uh, that the left has kind of erected.
1: And to expand upon that, the framework they've established is the oppressors and the oppressed. And I think when you abandon this idea of absolute truth where everyone has the same moral standards, and and from a Christian perspective, you're obligated to treat everyone well, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their gender, or regardless of their class, When you replace that with the critical theory dynamic, and we talk a lot about critical race theory, but critical race theory is just a component of other broader critical theories where you have people divided up into the oppressors and the oppressed based on their gender or their class or their sexual orientation or their race. And I think that quote is a perfect illustration of somebody who doesn't believe in absolute truth in a in a godly sense, but mm-hmm. believes that there are oppressors and oppressed, and it's okay to say things about the oppressors that you would never dream of saying about the oppressed, and that saying terrible things is actually moral in some cases, but saying terrible things directed at other people is immoral. And so I think what what her her quote there her her um her willingness to say that publicly and 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 um, boldly on national television is an illustration of the fact that she's embraced just a different epistemology see she's embraced a different worldview. Is that a fair way of looking at that?
9: No, I think so, Joseph. And, I, you know, again, we like to look at things through the lens of of, of worldview. And clearly what was uh, displayed in that segment of the view is that's the worldview of critical theory that you just explained really well. Uh, Certain groups are oppressors. Certain groups are are, uh, oppressed. And that's where, as Christians, Joseph, we need to tell people that our our worldview tells a better story, uh, that all people are made in God's image. Every single person has inherent value and dignity. Uh, White people aren't more valuable than black people. Black people aren't more valuable than Hispanic people. Uh, All people are made in God's image, period. And so that's where a biblical worldview, again, gives us this dignity, this value And I think, again, as Christians, we need to realize increasingly uh, as people embrace other worldviews like Marxism or critical theory, we're increasingly going to have a different anthropology uh, as well as just a a different understanding of the way we should uh, relate to other people who might look and sound different than us.
1: David, another illustration of what it's like to be a Christian in an increasingly secularized world. Senator James Lankford spoke at FRC's Pray Vote Stand Summit in Atlanta this fall. Here's one of the things that he had to say.
2: That's not some radical principle just for people to be faithful and for God to bless them. I mean, it's just the most basic principle of all. Uh, as funny as it sounds, we've experienced a big drought in Oklahoma. The week after the week after we we passed this law to be able to protect the lives of children. We had the most overwhelming rainstorm that came across the state. And it was such an interesting conversation among people in the church like, did that just happen? Did, did that just occur?
1: Now, David, there, Senator Langford is suggesting that God would bless a, a state riddled by a rout uh, because of things that, that happened uh, culturally there in public policy. Now, this is the, the the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And on Twitter, Senator Langford, who's who's up for election now right now, his opponent had this to say: "Quote the growing trend of Senator Langford abusing his own interpretation of faith to gain the trust of his constituent goes hand in hand with the extreme government overreach that he is forcing upon women. Vote him out." End quote. Now. Should we be surprised that uh, he's being mocked for suggesting that God blesses people for what they do?
9: We shouldn't be surprised, you know, what the senator, and I, I was there in Atlanta, got to talk to the senator right before he went on stage, and we just talked about uh, Christian worldview. He's actually a graduate from the same seminary that I'm getting a degree from, Southwestern Seminary. And what he articulated there is what Christians have been articulating for 2,000 years, Joseph, uh, this idea that we want to honor God in, in all areas of our life. We don't just corner off our faith And we have this private walk with the Lord, but then every other aspect, we kind of walk uh, in the public square, uh, the naked public square, so to speak, where we're not allowed to bring in our worldviews. Christians have understood for thousands of years. Uh, that our calling is to follow the Lord, it's to honor him in in everything we do. And even, uh, Joseph, one thing I'd I'd add is, you know, the Bible talks about things such as national repentance and a whole nation returning to the Lord in in prayer and fasting and repentance. I know Tony um, uh, Perkins has used that phrase referring to the Dobbs decision as far as it kind of being an act of repentance of the Supreme Court, admitting that they were wrong uh, 49 years ago. And so you're right, Joseph, the, the reaction that Senator Langford's getting, it just shows that even just uh, language that we use that that comes from scripture, basic biblical themes, uh, basic biblical imagery is increasingly interpreted as somehow nefarious, subversive, um, as a form of so-called Christian nationalism uh, that we should be leery of, when in fact the senator's just uh, articulating basic Christian principles that I would bet the vast majority of folks in Oklahoma probably agree with him.
1: And to that point, uh, Tony Perkins, the host of Washington Watch, typically, uh, he weighed in on this particular uh, issue. He said, quote, I grew up in the great state of Oklahoma, and I learned genuine faith is essential. The family is irreplaceable, and freedom is worth protecting. I've known Senator Lankford for years, and he represents the values of Oklahoma extremely well. Be wary of those who attack. Those values, and I have a feeling the uh, voters of Oklahoma are going to agree uh, with Tony on that particular point. David, one other story I want to cover with you as we do our uh, tour of the world on biblical worldview and uh, and moral relativism. There's an article this week in the Atlantic uh, calling for COVID. Amnesty. Now, we know that there was a ton of disagreement about COVID policy, closing schools, closing businesses, keeping people away from their loved ones as they died, canceling weddings, a whole host of things that happened, right? And we're now beginning to realize the fallout of that. Kids are years behind uh, in their educational careers. Uh, Math scores are bad. Language scores are bad. And we now have these calls for COVID amnesty, which is essentially—and I think the word amnesty is uh, is interesting because typically that's used in a context where you've admitted guilt, I've done something wrong, but I don't want to face the consequences anyway. I don't know if you read it that way, but as Christians, we are to be gracious. We are to forgive. We are to extend mercy, even when people are wrong. What's your reaction to this idea uh, that we should have COVID amnesty? We should no longer criticize, judge, demand accountability. It's time to uh, move on.
9: Well, yeah, two points, Joseph. Uh, obviously, and you're right. The the Christian ethic is one of forgiveness. Um, I just pulled up uh, Ephesians 4.32, which I think is, you know, what Paul would tell us, you know, be kind to one, one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So, sure, the, the Christian ethic is one of forgiveness. Um, however, when it comes to what happened with COVID and, and the, the the argument that this author is making in The Atlantic, I did read this article, is essentially there was a lot of misinformation uh, some of us made decisions that turned out to be quite foolish, like closing beaches and going on hikes and wearing masks and things like that. So I, I do think at an individual level, Joseph, we should forgive people. However, I do think that doesn't mean we forget. Um, and I think a lot of these mayors and governors who made these decisions Um, have doubled down and they haven't said they're sorry. And I think the next time something were to happen, uh, we have no indication that they would do anything different. I'm thinking of uh, the debate Gretchen Whittemore had with her um, opponent, Tudor Dixon, the other couple of nights ago for that governor's race in Michigan. Uh, Gretchen Whittemore seemed to just double down on the decision she made to keep schools closed forever. And so I think, yes, at an individual level, we should be for our postures want to forgiveness. But I do think we should, especially in the constitutional republic, we should want to hold people accountable. And especially folks, you know, a lot of these leaders don't think they did anything wrong. And a lot of these guys are up for reelection. I think that should factor into a decision that voters make.
1: Well, it's not a strong political play to run into your attempted reelection, uh, admitting all of your mistakes, right? There's, there's a real reason why we know people are not doing that. But is it spiteful? Is it unforgiving? Is it bitterness to demand accountability for mistakes that have been made?
9: I don't think so, Joseph. And I think, yeah, we should check our heart. Only you and I know what our hearts are saying if we have a, a personal animosity towards someone. So, sure, we, we should check our hearts. But I think we should be people who call uh, our leaders to account. Uh, ultimately, Romans 13 uh, says in a constitutional republic, you and I, we are uh, the government and we we vote people to represent us. And so I think part of voting is holding folks accountable. I think we absolutely can and should do that as Christians.
1: I think you're exactly right when you say the key to all of this is checking your heart. If the motive for accountability and questions and getting answers is to simply extract a pound of flesh from somebody that you're mad at. uh, That's not a good reason. But we do understand that real lives have been damaged in all of this. And if our motive is, we want to make sure we don't do this in the future and that we can can avoid this kind of pain because there's been real pain. There's been real injury to people's lives. And some of those will not not ever be recovered from in some senses. You know, we hope these kids are going to learn and, and figure out their up in their math and their language, but it's going to take a while for that to happen. And so out of concern and love for those people, if that is our real motive, we have to do better. We have to demand accountability. But what we can't do is act out of bitterness and anger and rage because that's never the heart of Christ. David, thanks so much for your time today, as always.
9: Thank you, Joseph.
1: And friends, we thank you for being with us. Remember, Election Day is on Tuesday. Do whatever you have to do to vote and vote well when you do. But remember, don't stress. Jesus is in charge of all of it, even if the wrong guy loses. Fear God and nothing else. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported.